You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software, and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 Podcast. Paul and Andrew are here this week. Um, and your dog. Oh, and my dog. Yeah, he's sitting under the table. He's not He's not farting today, though. Not so. yet. Not he's going yet. to. I'm sure his time will come. Uh, but yeah, uh, so let's see here, Paul. What's what's new in the world of uh, us? So, so we have elevated our game. We are stepping it up. Yeah, and I hope that everyone listening to this can tell. So, so months and I talked to our wives. Smooth about jazz, one hundred one point four. So we spent a bunch of money on some new sound equipment, some mics. So if it sounds better, good. If it sounds crappy, we're still trying to learn it. So yeah. give us give us a break. But before we dive in too much, uh, I I, I want to you know we talk about it every week. Go wild. Download the app, Android, iPhone. Get it. Time to go wild. dot com. Awesome. Um, they're not going to sense you know censor your, your your hunting photos. I mean that's such a like it's such a huge thing. And what we all do right now, a lot of talk, a lot of discussion about it uh, across all platforms. So it's a great community. They got a lot of really cool stuff. You get cool stickers. Uh, you get points awarded for your trophies. So I've really d- just dove into to the Go Wild app. I really enjoy it. The people that I've met, I appreciate talking to you guys. There's some listeners that have, that have reached out to me on that platform. Thank you. Keep sending those messages. Keep tagging me in your posts. Uh, check out the, the podcast so page on there. Uh, so yeah, time, time to go wild.com, download the app, Android or, uh, or iPhone. So it's really the place to be. You've got the shopping aspect. You've got the connection aspect. Paul and I are writing a few articles. So, uh, which, yeah, those are fun to write. They uh, are fun to write. I think they're, they're, I think they're, they're, I think they're going to be really good. I just wrote one. Uh, that's coming out here soon. It's the history of the wild turkey. We're so just that... we're just lucky we have really good guests that come on that can share their knowledge that oh, we can God. regurgitate. Can you imagine and... if if like if, if it, it was, was just us talking. Just us. I yeah. mean, we sound we sound freaking awesome in my headphone right now. So it's got to be it's yeah. got to be important. So, but anyways, we appreciate everybody checking us out there on Go Wild. Uh, if you haven't joined, 
I'd suggest you do. Um, so we are winding down. Today is January 31st when we're recording this. And the end is near. Oh my gosh, we're almost to the end of that deer season. It's like total depression time. Deer season, duck season's almost over. Oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing myself. Um, no, I'm sure that we will find plenty of time because before you know it, the sheds will be dropping if they haven't already. And then uh, spring will be here in time for turkeys and everything else. So it's all good. Um, so let's talk about news in the state. Let's talk about it. So the DNR tweeted out a, a picture and it was Ohio's top 10 lakes for fishing. So the, the three species they did crappie, saw guy and largemouth bass. So saw guy, we're just going to do the number one for, for, for saw guy central Ohio. This was very surprising. This lake has gone through a lot of transformation. Buckeye Lake number one. So, so let me, let me rephrase this. This is the number one uh, fish Ohio. So the top 10 lakes reported fish Ohio. So you don't know what fish Ohio is. It's a, it's a measurement of each game fish. And, and if you submit, you get a pin. Uh, if you catch so many species, you get a master angler pen. It's a really neat program. You guys should check it out. I, I, I do it. I submitted a couple last year. I think I submitted one or two. Uh, so Buckeye Lake saw guy, uh, have in there crappie mosquito Creek Lake. I don't even know if I know where that's at. Is that, I think I might be up like Northeast Ohio. No idea. I don't know. I, I've, 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 I've turkey hunted up, up, up somewhere. I think it's mosquito. So, and the mother, the mothership here, the large mouth bass. Didn't even know we had a lake in the name of, in the state of Ohio called this Appalachian Hills. Congratulations. Never. Congratulations, Appalachian Hills. Yep. Never heard of Number it. Number one. So good for you guys. Everyone flocked there. So that's really the only news <laughs> that I have. There's a bunch of guys that fish there that want nobody else to know that that's the best Don't lake. Blame and, me. It's on Twitter, man. And uh, now they're, everybody's best. flocking there. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> right. So. No, but I think uh, right now it's we're in a little bit of a, a lull um, for the winter season as far as news goes. We'll keep you up to date if we come across anything else in a few weeks here. We're going to work to get, um, well, we've got it lined up with get Tonk back on, talk about the deer population in Ohio and how the season Yeah, so we're doing a, we're doing a whitetail roundtable with Tonk, Mike Tokovich from the ODNR, and then Lindsey Thomas from the National Deer Association. It's going to be pretty good. It's going to be great. It's so going to be good. If you guys follow Lindsey on twitter he's real active on there the guy's super smart um it's gonna be cool i think it's it's gonna be a really neat episode i think for us and i think you guys will really enjoy it so yeah and the uh, little bit of internet we didn't realize it but mike and Lindsay are are good friends yeah they know each other so that's uh it's like a couple of brothers bantering yeah. back and forth i there think those emails. guys are so good at what they do all we have to do is say just point them in the direction yeah. and they're just gonna they're, Go. they're gonna talk together and you and I are going to sit there and just listen. And we might get our awesome. first ever four hour podcast out oh, of it. God. You know? That's like that's like meat eater style, <laughs> Joe Rogan podcast. Oh uh, lord, so that's that's good stuff. So let's see what else. All the seasons are ending. We got some good turkey content coming down the pipeline. That's been pretty cool. We got some of that coming up. So yeah, and I hope in the near future we got more big news to announce with people. But yeah. well, we're working on a few things. So outside of that. I was out a little bit in the cold temperatures, uh, yeah. no luck, but whatever. It was beautiful mornings. I did some, and... some rabbit hunting. A, a buddy of mine hit me up like late that. Friday night, like, hey, what are you around? I'm like, yeah, why not? Did you end up going? We did, yeah. We got out to the spot. It was like negative seven when we were out there, and it was gorgeous. I mean, the sun was shining. You know, the, the, We were out on this public land spot, 
in the, you know, there's fog rolling off the river. And I mean, it was just cool, man. And the snow was crunching and there were rabbit tracks everywhere. You know, cause you could see it real easy. We scared some ducks up off of a little Creek, not a single rabbit. I mean, it was so cold and you know, we don't have a dog. So we're just out kicking brush piles. And, uh, but it's funny. We're like following these rabbit tracks. Like, All right, they're going to be over here. They're going to, they disappeared under this bush and you kick it and there's, <laughs> there's nothing there. Yeah. They were there two days ago, but that's, fine. it was fun. Yeah. It was still, still a good time. So, well, <clears throat> today's this week's episode, we've got, uh, our first two time repeat guest, Mr. Tony Peterson. So if you're going to go big with a repeat guest, you might as well get, uh, Mr. Everything Outdoors GTA, there is. Yeah. So yeah. That guy's good, man. He's he's good knows the stuff, knows super, deer stuff. And super. super passionate about hunting dogs. Yes. So and, we I know we've had a few uh listeners and friends that have gotten dogs for either for the holidays or Yeah. Just coming to be that time. So we wanted to get Tony on to talk a little bit about choosing dogs, training dogs, what to look for, what not to do. And uh, I think, I think he could have talked for a while. Without any further ado, I think that's all we got, Paul. That's it, man. Ripcord. All right. Take care, everybody, and we will talk to you next week. See you guys. everybody today it is andrew and paul and our special guest our first two-timer mr tony peterson uh but this time we are not talking about tone uh white tails uh because tony talks a lot about white ta- tail everywhere uh today we're gonna talk about dogs so tony welcome back how's it going good man thanks for having me back guys i appreciate it thanks for coming so uh one of the reasons we got into this this topic uh this week it's a lot of people, listeners, people we know that picked up dogs over the holidays, right? That's kind of a cool thing to do is you get a puppy. Uh, but there are people that also want to just make those dogs into uh, more outdoors, hunting dogs, bird dogs, shed dogs, anything like that. So that's what today's topic will be over, just talking different things along those lines. So um, I guess the first question I had in talking about this, Tony, well, do you want to give everybody your background and in, in your dog world? Because I know that um, we've talked about the deer side of things, but you do also quite a lot with dogs, right? Yeah. You know, it's kind of, it's sort of my guilty pleasure passion. And I, you know, I, I have a bad tendency to turn my hobbies into my job and I've done it. I did it with fishing. I've done it with whitetails and I've, I've done it with dogs to some extent, but I've kept like a, I've been more responsible with that. And so I do a lot of dog writing for gun dog and wildfall magazine, and I've done a lot of different stuff with the podcast, but it's just, I've always just been a dog person. Like there, there's just something in me, man. Like I'm wired to just love music and love dogs. I have certain things that are just like, I gotta have them. And growing up, I couldn't have a dog. Uh, my mom wouldn't allow it. And so I was never in a position to get a dog myself until I graduated college. And, you know, the first thing that my wife and I, you know, she was my fiance at the time is we got a dog. I was like, I got to have a hunting dog. And it was just such a game changer for me. And I've leaned so hard into it and gotten to know some really good trainers. And I write for some of them. 
And it's just a, I, I just, it's such a cool world, that working dog world, not just hunting dogs, but, you know, just the, the kind of the history of dogs and how we've come to use them and how, you know, our communication has evolved with them. And so I just, I think the whole thing is so fascinating. It is. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you said the, the history of dogs. I, I am fascinated with just kind of the, the historical relationship that there's just humans have with, with the hunting industry and how, and how we've evolved from, you know, having to hunt to survive to where we do it as, as, as a recreation. And, and so the, you know, in this, you know, kind of leading up to this, I was thinking about it, you know, like how, how did, how did humans come to rely on dogs so much to, to hunt? I mean, because they're, a lot of these breeds are just built for it, man. It is ingrained in who they are. It's in their DNA. So, so what's the, what's kind of the history and we can just keep it to the history in the U S can you take the last 10,000 years and cover that for yeah. us on how this worked? <laughs> well, if you're going to, if you're going to go to the U S it's going to be a hell of a lot shorter than that. Um, you really, they, they don't know how long this co-evolution thing's been happening, but they've found, uh, like footprints in caves. And I, th- I think France or Spain with people and, and dogs that appeared to be domesticated at the same time. And so that that was like 25,000 years ago. They date that back to. So a lot of kind of the expert uh, thought right now is like 20 to 30,000 years. And so when you think about that, you know, we, we look back a couple hundred years ago to maybe like what we have as modern day labs. And we go, oh, they were in Newfoundland and they were re- they were retrieving fish out of nets and stuff. You know, and we think like that was a long time ago. But when you think about the, you know, the first probably 10 or 15, 20,000 years of the coevolution of us and, and dogs, it was a survival thing. And so, you know, for them, for them to be used to, to catch stuff or protect us and us to protect them and provide food, it's just such a natural, it, it just makes so much sense, especially when you think back, you know, you imagine, you know, I, I, we've only been farming for like 10,000 years or however long it is. And so before that, you're talking hunter gatherers and some level of wolf type ancestor that cozied up to them. And it was a symbiotic relationship somehow. And we've, we've just kind of nurtured that, you know, I think it started in Asia somewhere and it's made it all the way through Europe. And then it made it across over here and we're still working on that. And so I, I think like, you know, understanding that to like the extent we can, it really helps you now because one of the, one of the problems that everybody has with dogs is that we don't know how to communicate with them. You know, like we, we kind of do, right? Like I give him a command, I give him a treat, whatever, when he marks positive behavior, but they're so in tune to nonverbal communication and eye contact, which is super rare in the animal world with us. You know, they can't get like primates to do that, right? Like primates don't look you in the eye, even people who work with chimpanzees and stuff and dogs specifically look you in the eye. Like, what do you want, boss? That's a huge thing. And so it's kind of, I just think it's so cool that we have that ability to communicate with them on a pretty high level without having to say a thing. And it, there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding out there in the dog world about that. Yeah, I've never even thought about that, but you're right. Every day when I pull in, my dog sits at the window and we have a staring contest before I pull all the way into the garage. But uh, <laughs> it's probably not exactly what you're talking about, but I, I do know what you're, what you're saying there. So do you, do you know how your dog knows you're coming home? The, so everybody we're, we're always like how the hell does a dog know my girls are going to get off the bus at 4 30 and at 4 25 they're looking out the window and i read that they studied this and it's the evaporation of scent so you leave in the morning at the same time every day to go to a nine to five 
you've left X amount of scent there. And they know that that fades. It's the same way if a dog is tracking something, it knows the direction it went by the evaporation of scent. And so if you step this way, there's a different evaporation level here versus here. And it, you got to, I mean, it, that's like, like such a, like a tiny little infinitesimal difference, but they know it. So when they sit in the house every day and your scent is like at this level at nine o'clock and by the time you get home, they know what level it's at. And so over time they go, it's, it's, it's faded to this point that dude's coming home. Isn't that wild? That is, that is on. Un- unbelievable so does that is it the same this is a stupid question uh mine gets up at like 405 every morning to eat is that his stomach talking or is that some kind of like internal scent driven clock thing that's probably hunger okay i mean there's they're so in tune to their stomach you know he's a, uh, he's a lab so he's really yeah in with his yeah so he he's that that's probably a different thing he's just <laughs> <laughs> i know he labs know what time they get fed yeah. you know i get that's that's neat yeah, the, you know, the just kind of the the nonverbal communication and the relationship that, that you have. I've only, I've only had one hunting dog. She was a German short hair pointer. She was great. I've had uh, an Australian shepherd that I used to take to my golf course all the time. And the shepherd specifically, I mean, the relationship that we had was it was just it was, you know, it was just it was neat. It was it was just really cool. And I think, you know, I, I'll go hunting with guys, you know, duck hunting, rabbit or, you know, upland bird. And just watching these dogs work with with their with their owner or their trainer, it's just fascinating. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And it's it's a, like you said, it's a very special connection. I think that that the dogs have with uh, with humans. So, what was your first dog? Your first gun dog you got? Uh, it was a golden retriever, okay. and it was a. I learned a lot about what not to do when I got that dog. I didn't. I didn't know. I mean, at that time in my life, I was. I was working for a financial company and I was selling wine at night. Like I was, (laughs) I was in a different place, you know, and we just got, I I grew up hunting with some buddies who had golden retrievers and it was like, okay, you know, I did, I did what a lot of people do, right? Like when you have exposure to a certain kind of dog, you fall in love with that dog. You're like, I'm getting that sucker. And so we got a golden and she was pretty typical of, of what a lot of goldens are today, which is a genetic train wreck. And she died at six years old, kidney failure, just bad, bad pedigree. Right. And I didn't, you know, the parents hunted. I was like, okay, this is what we need. And that really, that experience with her set me on the course of where I, I am today, because I said, I'm not going through this again. Like I'm, I'm going to figure out a way to get a dog that's going to live a long lifetime and really have the drive I want and have the things that I want out of a dog. So it was a, it was a sad deal, but it was a good learning experience for me. So when you're going to pick a dog, what are some of the things that you need to take into consideration? And if I, everybody, I think you ask them and say, what's the best dog there? Everybody's gonna have a different answer or sure. a lot of different answers. But, um, so I, what are some things, not everything necessarily, but that you would look into, whether it's genetics, breed, uh, use, uh, size, what you can handle, all that kind of stuff. Oh man, that's a loaded question. So we tend to, we tend to get pretty impulsive about dog buying sometimes, and it's generally a bad idea. If if you want a dog to work for you. So if you're, you know, your audience, your guys's audience is going to, they're buying hunting dogs. Right. And so the first thing you do is go, what do I do? Am I, am I just a duck hunter? Like, do I live and breathe for the duck blind or do I duck hunt a little bit and pheasant hunt quite a bit or, you know, take a trip out West for Sharpies. 
like what's the use case, right? Is it going to be a shed antler dog? And so I always tell people like, what is everything you know you're going to do and everything you might suspect you're going to do with a dog? Cause that'll inform, you know, if you're, if you're going to hunt ducks pretty hard, you're probably not going to go get like a German short hair pointer or something that's really not a water dog to that extent. And so you're going to be like, okay, I, I know kind of my, if I really like duck hunting, I, I know the direction I'm going to take, right. It's going to be the retrievers of some sort. Maybe it's going to be a chassis. Maybe it's going to be a lab or, you know, if you need a really, really versatile dog, you might look at some of the German breeds, you might draughts, wire hairs, whatever, <clears throat> and kind of just narrow your list down to, to like, what do you want the dog to bring the table? And then you got to go, what am I going to bring to the table? So if you, if you need a versatile dog, for example, let's say you want a German wire hair, you want it for, you know, tracking wounded game ducks, you want upland of all different kinds. Like that's that dog is going to check all those boxes, but are you qualified to train that dog? Do you know kind of what the breed's personality tends to lean into? Do you know how hard or soft they are? Like you got to ask yourself, you know, we, we always go, I want a dog that does this for me. And it will help. Most of the time we go, I want a dog that looks like this. We go, I want, I want a red one, or I want whatever. I think these dogs look cool. And it's like, to me, that's like buying a truck. Cause it's red. Like, <laughs> Man, if you don't care what's underneath the hood, you're you're probably in trouble, you know. And so you got you got to kind of figure that out a little bit. But you got to go, okay, how good of a dog trainer am I? How dedicated am I? Or am I sending this dog off? You know, wh what are you going to do with it? Because they bring a lot to the table, but we have to as well. And some of these dogs are just harder for amateur handlers to train. Like I wouldn't go get uh, like a drodhar. Just, just because I know a lot of people who work with them and they're, they're awesome dogs. Like they, they're, they're cool, but I know how I like to train and I don't know if they would fit my training style very well. And so I would be cautious of that. I know a really well-bred female lab with tons of drive is going to work right into my wheelhouse because it's going to love that retrieving game and there's going to be built-in rewards there. And so I go that, that works for me. And I know that. And it's, it's kind of just really important to be honest about that. And then, and, and so this is really long winded answer, but you start, you start going down those two paths and go, okay, what, what do I want the dog to bring? What am I bringing to the table? Then you go, okay, where's, where are the bloodlines that are going to get me there? So where, where are the bloodlines, the pedigrees that are going to deliver a, a puppy that should, you know, kind of fall into line with what I'm really hoping I'll get out of them. And that's, that's a tough part. Cause it's, it takes a lot of research. If, and if you don't know what you're doing, it's like pretty overwhelming. So when you're looking for the bloodlines and stuff, is it just a Google search of yellow lab puppies? Or, I mean, is it the AKC certifications or, or different things? What do you, I guess I wouldn't even know where to start on something like yeah. that besides uh, emailing my friend, Tony and say, Hey, where's the <laughs> So, I, I mean, a great way to do it is to actually try to find a pro who can help a professional trainer who can say, you know, this litter, that litter, whatever. But what you got to look at is what do I, you know, what do I want the dog to do? So for me, I, I like to hunt hard. Like when I go pheasant hunting, I want to hunt all day and we're going to cover some miles. Like, you know, all we hunt is public land and we, we really hit it pretty hard and it's a lot of cattails, late season stuff. So I'm like, uh, you can't give me too much drive, but I know that. So I, I want a dog that comes from field trial and hunt test breeding. 
and that is proven problem solver. It's going to probably be really athletic genetically, and it's going to have generations of dogs that have proven they can think and they can take instruction and they can go, okay, you want me to take a, you know, a line out to this far and then tee off of here. Like those dogs, those dogs know how to think that makes them pretty trainable, but you've got that you know, that energy level with it, with that drive. So you work to, you work to get that drive out there and then you come home and your wife's like, this dog sucks because it won't shut off. And it's just sort of the reality of the game. And there's a lot of people out there that'll say, you know, go with the British lab because it'll have a good off switch. And it's like, okay, it'll probably be better in the house, but like, there's no guarantees that you're going to get that off switch that way. And to what level are you sacrificing drive? That's where an individual litter really comes into play when we say you know i want a yellow british lab it's like well do you know how many there are like like they're so like they're like people right like they vary so much and so you i i always look at this like in the lab example and go forget the color like don't don't worry about color right now worry about what's under the hood and if you need that high drive or you don't want that high drive because you're kind of worried about managing it you can, you can find those levels and start, start digging in and go, okay, now this litter looks good. This litter looks good. What's the health like? How are the health checks Are the eyes, hips, elbows, all that stuff. And if you can go a little bit beyond that and go see some of the dogs that might produce that litter, even one of them, then you'll be like, now I have a picture of what I'm getting. You know, like my, my current pup, um, she's, I think she's 10 months now. And the reason I wanted her is because I got to see dogs out of the, the mom and they're little and they're super driven and they're super soft. So I know that I have this just like really good chance of getting a dog that wants to retrieve till she tips over. And then that I can use that in training every way possible. And I can condition that dog. And because she should have been soft and she is, I can just barely raise my voice and that dog will go, oh, and she'll just come over and like, what do you want me to do? Like, I don't have to use the e-collar. I don't have to light her up. I don't have to do anything. And she just wants to work for me. And it's like, to me, that's a really good combination, especially if you don't really, like, if you're not a professional trainer, you don't want that challenge, get something that's going to, you're going to be able to train. So in the, the most recent issue of, of Gun Dog Magazine, it's the annual puppy issue. There's there's a, an article in here about building lifelong behavioral traits. And and there's four of them, behavior, composure, confidence, compliance, preparation. Are there are there traits of dogs? You say, I want a hardworking dog. Are there traits that are just part of their DNA? They just who they are as a dog. And there's nothing that you as a trainer can can do to change that or, or make it better. Or is everything moldable with a dog? as long as you, the trainer, take the right steps at an early age? It, that's a, that's a trick question. Okay. So I'm not, I'm, I'm, don't, don't, give no, me no, no, no. I know. I don't know, I know. the answer. <laughs> I no, I know you don't. Um, but if you look at how they train dogs 40 years ago, you, a good, a, a trainer could get a dog to do anything, you know, like within reason of the dog's abilities, but you might have to use fear. You might have to use punishment. and instead of that, it's better to just look for those traits that you want to work with. And so, you know, like uh, uh, the high drive dog, for example, that dog 
it, you're going to have to work with that. So my do- I have to get my dogs a lot of exercise every day to take the edge off. I just do. But I can use that to my advantage training wise. And it's a hell of an advantage hunting wise. But I know coming into that, I'm not taking that drive out of them. You know, like I could lock them up in a kennel, but that that energy is going to manifest itself in bad behavior. Somehow they're going to bark all the time. They're going to do something. So you just got to know like how, how to kind of work with this stuff. And so if you're not comfortable with a certain behavior, like uh, for an example, like the, those German breeds, they come from. A, a totally different place where like big game hunting and big game recovery is just a part of every bird dog's life. So not only are they bird dogs, but you know, you're going to shoot a hog or whatever in Spain or wherever you are, that dog is going to recover it, or it might, might go in and kill something. Right. And so you have to know that you're getting a dog that has X amount of generations of that built in. So if you want just a pure pheasant dog, great but that you might get one of those dogs that can't not chase a porcupine and try to kill it like you, it might not be able to ever resist a raccoon or what so you, you know like that stuff's in there it's gene deep right like i you know i i have twin 10 year olds and they couldn't be different and one of them is a freaking lunatic she I, she's crazy and i just have to work with that because I know, like, I'm not taking that out of her. Like, I just got to funnel it. She's in a ton of activities and stuff, and she's super smart, but she's freaking wild. And it's just like, I don't know, what do you do with it? You just go, this, this is what I got. <laughs> I better make a plan. Otherwise, this whole thing's going to blow up, you know? It's the same thing with dogs. That's, I, so is fear, obviously, is not a good way to train a dog. I mean, well, I don't like, no, humans, we don't like to be trained with fear. You know, I, I don't do something out of fear of, you know, sometimes like my wife, like I don't know. my clean, wife has me. Yeah. You better clean the house. Like well I'm going to be scared you know, to see that. So I'm going to clean the house, but you know, like at work and, you know, sports and athletics, you don't want to be you know, fear driven. I mean, is that, is that way of training dogs is that kind of falling by the wayside? Um, It's falling. And it, you know, you have to be super careful here. It, there, there's a line in a tool song that says there's no love and fear. And I think about it all the time with training dogs. You can, you can compel a dog to do something because it's scared, but you're, you're sort of building just a shaky foundation relationship, right? Like you don't, you don't want that. And so you want them to want to work for you. And so you're seeing, you're seeing these movements of, you know, going away from e-collars and this kind of like fur baby movement. That's like, too far because they're not babies right like so we kind of have to course correct a little bit and just just figure out a way to work with the dog and reward them as much as possible now like if you take uh i don't there's there's certain situations especially with kind of wide-ranging dogs a lot of the pointers are real wide-ranging dogs especially if you get out west where it would probably be irresponsible to not use an e-collar and e-collar condition them because they might be getting out three, four, 500 yards and there might be a road or there might be something where you're like, it, you know, a little static on that dog's a hell of a lot better than scraping them up off the highway. And so it's not cut and dry to just be like, e-collars are bad. We shouldn't do it. Like if you use them responsible, they're fine. A lot of people don't, they use them as a crutch because they don't really know how to use them and they think it's a shortcut. It's really not, but and so in some ways, you know, if you, there are times where you might have to use fear if it's, if it's real danger to your dog, right? Like it's the same thing. You see this with uh, people who hunt big water for ducks. Like if you, if you have a real high drive dog, 
dog and you knock down a diver and you send that dog and that that duck just keeps going out and out and out into the water now you're in a situation where if you don't have a way to get that dog back if your recall can't override that drive then that dog's going to die or you're going to really scramble to get to it and so there are situations where you got to be like i i need this recall 100 percent because now we're in 38 degree water with two foot waves and this dog's not going to give up and that duck's going to get him killed and so it's there are situations like that, but for the most part with everyday training and the probably, you know, 98% of the skills we want them to have and the kind of manners we want them to have, you can get it through positive reinforcement. So in my, my process of, of looking for, for a gun dog, I just realized, you know, personally, it's not time for me to get a dog. It's not, you know, I'm not ready for it. I don't have the time to commit to training this dog properly and I don't want a house dog. You know, um, it's not, not what I'm looking for. So outside training. So, you know, hiring a professional, um, one, that's a lot of money. I looked into it. It's a ton of money. And two, I had some questions about, you know, kind of like those early formative weeks, months, years with a dog. I mean, are you missing out on those building that bond? We talked about that nonverbal communication. Like he looks at me, I look at him and he goes, I mean, is that dog still connected to you? You know, if you get it, you know, at 18 months, 24 months old. Um, yes and no. Uh, dogs are very intuitive, just like kids. And if you, if you were to watch the interaction between me and my daughters and my wife and my daughters, it'd be a different thing because they know what they can get away with, with her. And they know what they can get away with, with me, different sets of rules. Dogs figure that out too. Do I mean, dogs do it in the family dynamic. And if you, if you get a puppy and you send that dog off at five months or whatever it is to go get trained, that dog's going to go, Oh, this dude has different rules than the last dude. I'm going to follow those. But if you're not going to follow that new program and, and really stick to it, that dog's going to come back and it's going to, there's going to be some atrophy, right? Like it's going to slip back into the old ways unless you really stick to it. And so I always tell people, if you're, if you're really interested in hiring out the training, try to focus on the things that you, you couldn't easily do. So if you look at like the resources that a good pro is going to have, they're going to have live birds. They're going to have probably water to work in. They're going to have fields to work in. Um, they're going to have a process for gunfire introduction, which is huge. And they're going to, they're going to be able to do some of those things that, yeah, we could maybe do them. They're going to do them in a way that they're not going to fail. So they're not going to fail at the, you know, if they're any good, they're not going to fail at gunfire introduction. They're not going to fail at wild bird introduction. They're going to be able to do these things that like as an average person, it's a little harder to come by. And there's a huge benefit to that. You know, you, you, you know, when you look at dogs, a couple of things you don't want to have happen, obviously gun shyness is, is the worst, right? Like you, it, that's a hard one to come back from. You probably won't, but water introduction done wrong can really ruin a lot of dogs, including a lot of labs, which people don't realize. Um, live bird introduction. Let's, you know, let's say you take your eight month old pup out for the first time and you shoot a wild rooster and you knock him down, but he's got some life left in him. That dog runs up there. You watch them. Those roosters will get on their back, start throwing them spurs around and flapping those wings. You know, they're, they're fighting, right? They don't want to die. And that dog gets scratched on the nose or something. The first time it goes after a bird, you might have an aversion to live birds. That's like a real problem to get over. So some of those things that pro trainers do are like real valuable, but a lot of the stuff that we think we need a professional trainer for, we don't, 
Like there's tons of information out there. It's just, they're very, very good at efficiently getting out of dogs, what they want. Cause they know how to do it. They've seen every behavior. And so it's, it's harder for us. We kind of lean on professional help when we can, but I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of you know, do as much as you can. Cause there's a lot you can do. I want to talk about gun introduction because I mean, I've met people, Andrew, you've met people, dogs, Tony, you've probably seen it by the hundreds bought a dog intending it to be a duck dog, rabbit dog, doesn't matter. Uh, good breed. You know, did all the research, good training dog scared of a gunshot. And so I, I think for like the rookies or the amateurs, that seems to be like the number one mistake. So what's a, what's a good process to start loud noises in your dog's life? Well, I mean, you could, you, first off, you have to pick the moments in your life where you go. I, I mean, one of the, one of the most important things about getting a puppy is, identifying quickly what's what's the reward what's the driver so a lot of you know like labs a lot of right away is just treat training for little obedience stuff and that's good enough like that's that's a lot of dogs right and you try to transition a little praise in there or maybe a, a bumper or whatever but you you want to figure out what what does your dog wake up in the morning and think about like what does that dog want to do because that's going to set you up for developing that drive. And that's going to set you up for better intro work later. So whether it's water or gunfire or live birds or whatever, like you, you want to take that, that thing that they live for and you want to encourage that. And you want to, you want to kind of tie it into the, the prey drive, you know, chasing a wing or something like that and keep it, keep it very limited, but keep, you know, like develop that, you know, like give them a taste and take it away. And, you know, give them a taste of something else. And you want them to just be thinking like, this is all I want. Like, this is all I want. And then when you start to develop that, you see it in them, especially when they hit like four or five months, they start to get into that groove where you're like, this dog loves to retrieve or this dog loves to do whatever. And then when you have that foundation, you know, now I can, I can keep that dog's attention. I can keep it focused on something really positive. I can start getting those noises in there. So it might just be feeding right away and clapping. Or, you know, banging on the uh, food dish a little bit because food's positive for them, right? And then when you get outside and you're like, I'm, I'm going to start this gunfire intro. I mean, I start it with clapping during training. And I, I usually have my daughters or somebody help me, but we just get some distance in there. So I just want them to start associating that pop with something they're super happy about. So that retrieve or whatever, whatever little drill we're running where I know they're going to freaking love it. Start working those louder sounds in. And then it's you know, you upgrade a little bit to like a 22 short blank, you know, but that dog's a hundred yards away at first and somebody else is playing with it. And then you're just watching, is there any kind of like wince or like tense up or anything? And if you don't see that, you're like, okay, we could probably get a little closer. And it's, it's like a two week process for me anyway, where you bump up, you know, to 22 and then to the 410 and then 20 gauge and the 12 gauge always with a lot of distance at first and always with a real eye to the dog. And you see them, if you, if you get them doing something they love and you take it slow, they just accept that noise and start to kind of associate it with the good times. But, you know, there's so many, I, I'm very cautious about that because I know it ruins bird dogs. And, you know, you'll hear from people who are like, I just took it to the gun range and it sat in my truck and it was fine. So, yeah, people get lucky. Like, you, you know what I mean? Or I took it to the game fair and they were shooting skeet and everything was fine. Maybe, but I wouldn't risk that 
on a dog that could, you know, was destined to be in the field with me a bunch of days every year. And now it's going to be on the couch for 12 years. We'll have to buy a different dog. Do you get a redo as a trainer with that? <clears throat> I mean, if you've got a dog, that's like perfect in every other aspect, but it just is just shaky when it comes to guns. I mean, is that something through, through just a couple of years or it's one and done, man, you ruin that. You're done. You, uh, you'll hear stories about people that take gun shy dogs and get them back around. Uh, it's very, very rare, like very rare. And, you know, water shyness is a little easier to overcome, but it's real hard. Like it's these, these are not things you want to have happen. And so you're, you're working on these kind of things right when you get the puppy. Cause you know, like if you want a really good bird dog, you're going to, you got to get through those at some point. And so you're always building them up to them and it's a long process, but they're breakthrough moments. Like when you, my, my little puppy that I got right now, she was a pain to, to get into the water. And I don't know why, but I've never had a dog like this where she just made it up in her mind. She wasn't going to do it. And she'd get in up to her chest. And I mean, I could try everything and every once in a while, she'd take a little swim and go right back. And I was like, I can't have a duck dog. <laughs> that doesn't swim this is gonna suck and so i called up a trainer buddy of mine and he said find a really shallow pond that she's never been to and just get her in a new environment get her really worked up take her out when it's 100 degrees out throw some bumpers and so i took her to this spot by my house where it's a little pond in a park and i don't know if this made a difference or not it's covered in duckweed it's just a scummy little pond but the, the middle, maybe like six foot radius is deep enough where she has to swim. Everything else she can stand. And I took her down there. And the first time I threw this little uh, dove deadfall trainer in there, she just went in and swam right across it. And it was like, she never had a water aversion again. And so whatever, where, where I was doing it before, which I thought was a perfect environment. It was a canoe landing with a nice hard bottom and gently sloping warm water. She just made it up. She said, nope, this is not the place I do it. She swims there all the time now or after I got her into it, but it's little stuff like that, where you just go, man, you get so frustrated. You're like, I just want to throw her in. <laughs> I want to, you're going to swim, but you can't do that stuff. So you got to work around what they're showing you. Tony, if there's a couple things, three things that are the biggest mistakes you see with people that bring home a new dog, what, what would those be? Uh, I mean, the first would be not understanding how, how little time it really takes to get them on the right path. It's, it's not, you know, I, I, I use working out a lot as like a kind of a parallel to this stuff. People who don't work out, if you say you could do a 5k, which is 3.1 miles. A lot of people go, no, I can't, I can't run three miles. No way. And it's like, no, no, just, just start at one end of 3.1 miles. You can make it to the other. I promise you, if there was a, if there was a three-legged wolf that was a hundred years old and he was trying to eat you because you're going to be his last meal and he could only go two miles an hour, I guarantee you could go three miles or, you know, 3.1 miles a little faster than that wolf. Like you can do it. And then you work up and you go, okay, you're going to jog for two of the miles at some point and three of the miles, and you're going to get there it's a process. You know, too many people are like, I'd like to run a marathon, but I probably never will. It's like, well, okay. What's, why, why even say that? Like you have to understand what you're working with here with puppies. You know, you get that little eight week old puppy and you might have 
10 minutes total in any given day where you're doing some kind of little training thing, like a little treat train to sit, a little treat train down, a little treat train place, uh, stay with the feeding, just some, and if you add it up in the day, it's like 10 minutes worth of 20 second lessons. That's it. And it's just every day. And eventually you'll bump up a little bit. So you might be out at the park for 10 minutes or you'll do 15 minutes of retrieving drills when they're six months old at the park, but that's it. But that's what they need. They need that consistency every day and they need a little bit more challenge. They need some structure and you just need to get them to a place where it's like, they're working a little bit every day for some kind of reward. And they, then they learn to work. They learn to like the work. And it's not like you're taking four hours out of your Saturday away from your family to be like, I got to go train the dog. And it's the only time I have. You're training all day long in these little tiny increments. And it's really building to something. That's, the, that's a big one. Is that, I don't know if that answered your question. One of, the, one of the other things that I see that people do that is so prominent right now with these pandemic dogs, you know, we're, we're like... We're at a point now, if you go to a veterinarian and you ask them like, what, what's your daily situation like? They'll practically break down in tears because they're, they're dealing with, you know, eight month old dogs that they have to muzzle that are like labs because they're, they weren't socialized correctly or year old dogs. And the, the hard part with puppies is we get them, they're super cute. They're pretty easy to work with right away, typically. And we get lulled into this false sense of security. They, they look at us like that's the safety. Then they hit you know, six, seven months old, they start getting independent. They start getting to those teenage years. And now, you know, they're jumping up and they're not listening and they're running out and they're not listening, or they start biting again or get a little, little toothy. And people kind of go, now is when I need help. And it's like, you didn't do enough right away, probably. And now you really need to lock down that structure. That dog's showing you it needs some help. And it's, you know, these things that it has going on are manifesting itself in bad behaviors. And that's when people give up. And it like, that's the most crucial time. Cause he, if you take that dog through that first year, man, you got one more year of quite a bit of work and then you're going to have smooth sailing for that dog's life. Right. And I'm, I've got a lab, he's actually right here. Uh, but he was probably one of those ones that it, the first couple of years didn't get the training that he needed. Now he's a good dog, but, um, it's, uh, some of what I was thinking about was like uh, crate training. Is that super important? Is it um, leash training? I mean, he, he, my dog does not really walk on a leash very well, but I didn't really train him to do that yep. right off the bat either. We got the electric fence in the, in the yard and all that kind of stuff. And I guess maybe training, you know, hunting dogs and just your average home dog are obviously different things. Maybe, maybe not. Um, They're not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Every hunting dog's a house dog now. And, you know, those are, those are the common problems, right? And we get hunting dogs and we go, I got to train this dog to hunt pheasants. And it's like, no, dude, that, that dog knows how to hunt pheasants. Trust me. <laughs> like as soon as they hit the ground, they know they love the scent of pheasants and they like to chase them and watch them fly and put them in their mouth. And so what you got to train that dog to do is unnatural stuff like walk on that leash. Yeah. He's a cute, he's a cute dog. <laughs> And here's tail banging the side of our table. As long as, he's not, <laughs> as long as he's not farting in the office, we'll be all right. Yeah. That was bad last week. But that's, you know, the, that's the thing that a lot of people do is they, 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 we, we like what dogs do naturally, which is the hunting stuff. And we think like, we got to be a real big part of that. And it's like, no, no, you got to train a dog to listen while they're doing the things they're pretty naturally good at. And that's the hard part, you know, like getting a dog to do something it doesn't want to do. Like 
steadiness and recall, right? Like if you talk to duck hunters, steadiness, so important. Can you get a dog that is so driven? It'll retrieve sea ducks all day long, but it'll sit quietly beside you in the blind until you send it. That is unnatural. That dog wants to go. And then uh, on the other side of things is, can you take a dog into the CRP or wherever the most awesome environment you can put that dog in where it could smell everything and it's chasing birds and there's just cool shit going on everywhere and go, come here, get to my side every time. And he'll listen because that's a hard thing to do. And, that, and so we always lean into the stuff that's fun, right? Like we lean, lean into the retrieves and some of that stuff, but a good dog is made by those things it doesn't want to do, but it will do for the ultimate reward of getting to do what it wants. It's hard, man. I want to circle back around to the pandemic dogs. Um, I'm <laughs> sure there are millions of pandemic dogs out there and, and that's not an exaggeration. And oh, that's, that's true. Yeah. And so, so if we've got a dog that's got a good bloodline uh, and is just had shitty training for eight months and this dog's, you know, eight or 10 months old and the owner's like, I'm done. I can't, I can't handle this dog anymore because the owner was unprepared for this. Is that dog salvageable as a hunting dog? If you have someone that's good at what they do and is, is motivated to put the work in and, you know, some of those really bad behaviors we talked about. So it's gun shy water. None of that's happened. Nothing happened. This dog is, is just, it's just raw, but yep. still young and moldable. Is, is that something that, that someone could take and, and turn that into a great hunting dog? Um, yes. It takes a lot of work, but it's totally doable. Okay. Totally doable. That's kind I mean, of a cutoff for dogs at that age. Yeah. Can you yeah. teach a two-year-old dog that doesn't have bad habits? Could you teach them good hunting habits? Uh, I would say it would be very hard to find a two-year-old dog like that that didn't have bad habits, but it, it's, you know, it varies, right? I mean, the, the thing that you see, so like the pandemic dogs are a perfect example where they didn't really get socialized probably very well. So that's, that's an issue. And they were, they're very dependent, right? Cause they, you were probably working from home. And when you got that puppy, so that puppy's like, he's here all day long, every day. And that's becomes real important to them. And we know it with modern dogs, one of the biggest stressors they have is separation anxiety from us. And so, and that, that layers, right. Those, that cortisol dump that layers in dogs and it, it might not show up in a dog that's going to chew through your wall right away, but something bad's coming. And it's worse if they don't learn to deal with that right away. So like you mentioned crate training, like if that dog doesn't learn that it has a safe space and they're, you know, they're den animals, they're, they're good with crates. Like they're, that's a great tool to have It's safe for travel. It's good at home to have them understand that's their space. But if you get a dog that's like, Every day you're like, we're here, we're doing stuff together. We never leave you alone. We never take you anywhere where you're exposed to new environments. Now you have a dog that's not gaining confidence in, in new environments, which is super bad. So we think socialization is like, you know, you meet other people and you meet other dogs and you learn to be nice to them. It's, that's a part of it. But a bigger part of it is confidence in new situations, you know, like in the, in the big game side of things, I've seen people who were terrified to leave their home farm for whitetails to go hunt anywhere else. It's the same deal. It's all they know. And all they can think about is I'm going to go to this public land. I'm going to get my butt kicked. I'm not going to see any big deer. I'm going to have to tell people at work that I didn't fill my tag or whatever. It's the same thing with dogs. If you don't get them out in those, those new environments and get them to experience things and develop that confidence, 
that's going to come back to bite you. And you, we see that we, we really saw an exaggerated example of that with the pandemic dogs and they're it's playing out in real time now with, like you said, millions of them that have a lot of work to do and they're probably not going to get it. So I, I'm the owner of a new dog, good bloodline, done all my research. Uh, it's, it's up to me at that point to, you know, train the trainer type of deal to, to, to get this dog to where it needs to be ducks, upland, rabbits, shed hunter. What's the, what's the first thing that I need to do is, is a, to be a successful amateur dog trainer, aside from the obedience, not pooping in the house. We get that, you know, not jumping. What's the first like hunting related thing that I is, is a trainer that I, that I kind of dive into with that dog. Um, you know, if, if you're talking a, a flushing breed or retriever, you know, it's the retrieve desire. It's so important. So whatever their natural instinct is, if I'm a duck. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would be a little different with a pointer. Okay. The development would be, uh, but it's, you know, what, what's the basis of all those activities, right? If you're a duck hunter, what do you need the dog to do? Sit still and retrieve. If you're a pheasant hunter, you need it to go out there, find the pheasants, kick them up, then retrieve them when you shoot them. If you're a shed hunter, you know, you're going to go out there say, find the bone. And it's going to, the whole thing is it's looking for a retrieve. It likes to hunt. It likes to bring something back to you. And so that's just so important, like developing that. And that's, that's why I, you know, I, I go back to labs a lot. That's one of the reasons, you know, like maybe to circle way back to the pedigree and stuff and the importance of bloodlines. That's one of the reasons I like labs is because they're so popular. There's so many bloodline options out there that I don't have to settle for anything to get exactly what I want. Now I might go to like a more obscure breed and be like, there's only so many of these breeders in the country. And so if I really want that kind of dog, I might sacrifice a little bit on the retrieving desire or something else to get it. I don't want to do that. And so I, I want to just go find the, the dog that's like, that is the dog for me. And that's going to have tons of retrieving desire because it plays into everything. So developing that with those dogs, like you're talking about, that's a huge step, but it's, it's not something you don't do like three months of obedience and go, got that. Now we do retrieving. You're building that. All that stuff's built in there. All this stuff is daisy chain behavior. And so you're still working on obedience, maybe in a little different way, but while you're building in retrieves and it might be front loaded to, to more obedience right away and fewer retrieves. And as that dog matures, you might not have to stick that obedience so hard. It just might be there. And the retrieve thing is what's becomes the focus but that's reading the dog too do i have to spend 10 grand on a dog i mean does pedigree and when i when i say pedigree i mean like the really like top notch you know high end or can i go to some you know some hillbilly in central ohio that has got a good mom a good dad whatever the term is for that and just got good dogs but they're not they don't have that, that paper to go with them. I mean, is, I wouldn't do that. Okay. So this is another reason why I like, uh, labs. I don't have to spend my, the puppy I got right now, I spent 1500 bucks on her, which is pretty. That's pretty standard. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've helped a couple of buddies in the last few years, get field bred goldens and they're far more limited, right? Like you can find any random golden with show breeding in there and pay, you know, 500 bucks, thousand bucks, 1500 bucks, whatever. But 
if you want a field bred one, that's going to be a little athlete. that's not going to have a 60% chance of getting cancer and have some of these genetic issues. You're going to spend 2,500 bucks, 3000 bucks for that dog. And so it's a supply and demand thing. Labs are our most popular sporting dog in the country. They're easy to find. There's a lot of them and there's a lot of good choices for good breeding. If you go, I want something else, that's fine, but you might have a, a smaller pool, you know, on the pointer side of things, the, the closest comparable is the German short hairs, super popular. So if you wanted a pointer and, you know, you need this and that out of them and you want a lot of good bloodlines to, to sift through, that's a great choice because you're going to have more options and it's not going to cost you what it would to get maybe some other kind of breed. And so there's a perception out there that because, you know, the dog thing's crazy, like French bulldogs can be like $4,000 a puppy right now, which is insane. And so people are like, oh, the dogs are so expensive now. I said, no, not, not necessarily. Like it depends what you want and, and what you're looking for. Okay. So I'm going to go through a couple of things. And I know this is all very subjective, but I'm going to read off uh, what the dog would be good for. So bird dog or whatever. Uh, and then I want you to tell me what kind of breed I would look for to start or breeds if there's a couple that are kind of front and center so um because i'm the i like the white tails how about a shed dog tony where what breed would you move to for sheds well so you got to look at it this way if you if you train a shed dog and you want a good one it better have a lot of retrieving desire because antlers are not that much fun for dogs they're just not they don't you know they give off a little tiny bit of scent little bit of scent they don't move. They don't run away. They don't fly. It's mostly just for the pure act of retrieving. And, you know, it's, it's seeking something out. It's a hunt dead type of thing, but you need a retriever. So, I mean, go, go look around and, and look at like the, the NASDA events and stuff and tell me what kind of dogs you see there for shed dogs. It's all freaking labs. I, I shouldn't say that. It's like probably 90% labs and it's because the retrieving desire and you know, my golden was actually a pretty good shed dog. It's, it's, if you have a dog that likes to bring stuff to you, you have a potential shed dog. But if I was going to, if I was like, I live to hunt sheds and I'm a whitetail guy and I want a shed dog, I would lean real hard into some kind of retriever that has tons of retrieving desire. Okay. Waterfowl, same thing, retrievers. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, when you, when you look at waterfowl, if you're if you're hunting big water or really cold late season stuff you might lean into the chesapeake bay retrievers a little bit you're going to get into a different training experience big time um and they, they you know some people use them for upland and they can be pretty good for that but you know you look at their history of retrieving sea ducks and they're 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 really well designed for cold big water so that might be an option, but if you're like, no, I hunt wood ducks here and I hunt the backwaters of the Mississippi, it's like, I don't know, man, it's pretty hard to beat a lab for that. You know, all roads go back to the lab. I love it. A lot uh, of them do, the, especially uh, where you live. Right. Right. Um, but upland game birds, you, we kind of talked about the, the German short hair pointers and labs again, about a flushing dog for that. Well, so the, the upland world is where you would, you would have a, way more options. So if you're, if you look at people who live for upland hunting, 
they almost typically run a pointer of some sort and they have a nice over under over their shoulder. <laughs> like there's a reason people are going that way. And, but there's a relationship thing there. And, and again, like I'm kind of generalizing here. So I know people will get pissed about this, but there's, there's two ways for dogs to hunt. You know, if you have a pointer, it's like, there's the obvious way, right? Like that dog runs out, it points a bird, you walk up, you flush it, it you shoot it, whatever. And then you have a flusher, which is working in front of you and it's just kicking stuff up and you shoot it and then it retrieves it. But there's also a dynamic of sort of parallel play with a pointer, right? Like they're, they're hunting with you, but they're kind of hunting for themselves while they're looking for that bird. You know, it's like, you're, you're, you're kind of controlling them. They're kind of controlling the, the, the flow and it's sort of a different thing. And then, you know, they go out, do their thing, you know, point that bird then you walk up and do your thing and when you run, run a flusher that dog's sort of setting the pace it's if it's trained well it's going to stay close to you but you're kind of like moving in tandem like you're you're reading them they're reading you and so there's a teamwork aspect of that that's different and so some people really like the pointer side of things and they're like i just i love you know walking along and waiting for my dog to go on point and then i go up like they love that part some people love the teamwork of having a dog that's like just, just going and going and going. It's showing you in real time, like they're here, they're not here. I'm checking here. My tail's doing this. It's a different relationship. And that that's what I'm into, but it depends what you want. Squirrel dogs. Squirrel dogs are awesome. Uh, I've never, I've never trained one. I've got buddies who, you know, clay and whoever, uh, you know, you're going to get a feist or something like that. And there, I have no idea. Actually, I don't even know if they train them. Like, I, I don't know if they actually put any time into him or they just let him go. And they're like, he's barking over here. Okay. And I, I think they learned to hunt together, but I don't, I don't know that much about them. Interesting. I, let me put it this way. Squirrel dogs are really low on my list at this point in my life. <laughs> All right. And then uh, just like a blood trailing dog, if you were going to go that route. I mean, I, I think that what I've seen a lot of times guys have the, the dachshunds, which mm. uh, my kids find it hilarious. The wiener dogs are out looking for the deer, but. Um, is that the, the breed of choice in that realm? Um, you know, I mean, there's a reason there's a bloodhound out there, you know, um, I think that I think a, a game recovery dog, if you get, I, you, I suspect you could almost take any dog and train them to do that with their, with their history. You know, it, it's so, you think about like, you hear about people go out to Kansas, they shoot a deer and they hit it in the guts and they're like, I don't want to leave this overnight because the coyotes are going to find it. and They're going to eat it up. And it's real common, right? It's not just Kansas. This is all over. But uh, canines, wild canids, they're so in tune to that. Whatever stressors, signals are in that, that trail, you know, they're not finding blood. They're, they're, they're smelling a stressed out animal and they know it's wounded. Like there's a, there's a difference. They might smell blood, but like a, a blood trailing dog isn't a true blood trailing dog. He's following the scent of a wounded animal. And they're so in tune to that because, you know, for you know hundreds of thousands, millions of years, that's what they did to survive, right? Like if you, if that's what you are and you're out there and you run across the scent of a wounded, whatever, it's like, okay, we're changing course. Cause there's a meal potentially falling right into our lap there. And so it's pretty, it's, it's not as hard as some of the other stuff to get a dog to understand that game. It still takes some training, but working dogs, sporting dogs, they, they get that. I mean, I think, I think you would find a little difference in some of the pointers that kind of they sent with their head up versus head down. 
you know, when you watch dogs work, there's probably a, a benefit to having a dog that has its head down more to work scent, but I bet they could all do it. Yeah. And I just told my kids that, well, you know, obviously the wiener dogs are closer to the ground. You gotta be low to the ground to find the blood. Right. So yeah. all right, I'm gonna I think you should a- definitely get a wiener dog and train it. To- <laughs> right. <laughs> right, I'm going to throw in a curveball on what dog on, on, on this game we're playing morel mushrooms. There's gotta be a dog that can do it and don't say lab. Man, I talked to somebody who tried to train their dog to do that. I can't remember who the hell that was. Do I have to get a pig, like a truffle pig? Well, so the the problem with laugh at that. That was funny. Morels, <laughs> no, we I've I've had this conversation before. Oh, okay. Uh, the problem with morels, if I'm remembering the conversation correctly, is it's such a flash in the pan kind of thing where it's like you gotta, you know, two weeks maybe or whatever. So training for it's really hard. You know, like how do you get, go get some morels right now? Like I'm in Minnesota in January. I wouldn't even know how to do it. Like, I mean, I'm sure you could order them somewhere, but market, I'm sure. Yeah. Somewhere you could get them or dried morels or something, but it's like, it's just not uh real popular. Not, not realistic. Yeah. Oh man. Um, Tony, one other thing I had written down that I want to ask you about, and I've heard people give different opinions in the past. If you're going to do multiple dogs. So uh, you want to have a couple dogs in your house and I'm not talking necessarily, this is more of the at home thing and socialization of the dogs. I've heard that you shouldn't get them at the same time and you should get them staggered because then they won't rely on each other as much. Can you touch on that a little bit, man? I am a big proponent of not getting two puppies at the same time. That's, and as a guy who had two babies at the same time, I can tell you it's probably a bad idea. And what you see a lot of times with people who get two puppies at the same time is the, if you get a little puppy, even my, my 10 month old right now, she loves people, but if there's another dog around, that's her focus. And so when you get two puppies, they have each other. They don't need you the same way. And the development issues can be pretty tough. Um, tra- and that, that leads into like training two dogs at the same time. Like I have, I have two retrievers right now and I can't train them together. Like, I shouldn't say that when we do some water work, I can, but most of the time it's a giant pain in the ass and I need to train them separately because the distraction and the jealousy and stuff, it's, it's hard. People say, Oh, my, my old dog trained my young one to hunt. Like, no, it didn't like your, your young dog hunted while your old dog hunted and it learned some stuff, but your, your old dog's not like, Hey, listen up youngster. Like the pheasants like to run through, like they don't do that. Right. And it's a, it's a real challenge. And so I, I would say, don't do that. And I'll I'll give you an example. So I took one of my daughters to Cabela's this weekend to go buy some stuff and people bring their dogs in there all the time. That's one of the reasons my, my daughter wanted to go. This woman had two Vishlas and she was standing outside and they were pretty young. They look like she, she said they, I think were seven months and they were brother and sister. And so as we were kind of watching, she was, she was giving these dog treats and dogs treats and the, the female was jumping up like to her shoulder height to try to bite this treat. And I was, you know, like it was an impressive vertical. It was also bad dog behavior. And so we walked up and I asked if my daughter could pet them. And I was just asking her about these dogs. They were clearly hunting dogs. And I was like, man, you got, you got two out of the same litter, huh? And she's like, oh, I wouldn't do it any other way. She's like, these dogs are perfect. They listen perfectly and they have each other. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, I just watched that dog practically jump on your shoulder to grab that treat out of your hand. Like, I I don't, that wasn't perfect behavior, you know, but we kind of, 
it's easy to kind of lie to yourself and fall in love with it and kind of gloss over that. But generally speaking, don't get two dogs at the same time. So last question. Uh, and I don't know if this is a myth, but you always hear people say it. Do, do female dogs make better hunters than male dogs? I think it's a myth. I mean, I like female dogs and I really can't tell you why. Like I, you always hear like, oh, they're more aggressive. And I, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you look at like the field trial world, uh, typically the people in it, I mean, obviously this varies, but you see male black labs do really well. And so I don't know, you know, I don't know how much of that is people going, well, a male black lab won this, so I should have that, but there's, there's a reason for that stuff. And so if they're winning field trials with male black labs, they're hunting the crap out of them and they're doing awesome, right? Like I've seen, you've seen male dogs that are awesome in the field. I think sometimes the female thing is you're maybe hedging on a little less stubbornness, a little less hardheadedness and a little easier to work with than males sometimes. And so I think that's kind of why I lean into it. I, I like smaller dogs anyway, for the injury issues and stuff. Like I'd rather, I'd rather have a 50 pounder. That's probably not going to blow out an ACL versus an 80 pounder that might, uh, but drive is drive, like drive is genetics. And so I don't, I don't think, I think we like to think there's a lot of differences, but I, I don't think, I don't, I don't think there's like a ton of gender-based differences in dogs. Well, Tony, we appreciate your time, man. And, and, uh, and the knowledge and experience you have with, with dogs, man, I, I've enjoyed this talk and one of these days I'm going to dive into the world of dog ownership, but it's been good. not now. So, well, you're, you're taking your time. I like that. Yeah. It's gotta be, you know, it's, I've got young kids. I've got travel over the country for work. It's just, you know, it's gotta be that time. So yeah. Yeah. Good you, call. I've got a couch that you can sleep on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, all right. Well, we appreciate it, Tony. Take care. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk to you again. Yeah, thanks, guys. Bye.